And today on the program, news analysis, and there's a lot of news that's being made at this moment, and not merely analysis, but opinion and interpretation from three of the six members of our A-team of news interpreters, indeed of uh, political and social analysts. They are Richard Baer, chief political correspondent for The American Thinker, Richard Ciccone, the uh, professor, uh, adjunct professor of American Studies and Journalism at the University of Notre Dame, and of course, former managing editor, and before that, former political editor of the Chicago Tribune. And Scott Santis, speaking of the Chicago Tribune, probably the most brilliant, surely the most amusing and pertinent of all the political cartoonists uh, in uh, operation in this country today. Gentlemen, there's a funny old song, uh, rather a funny old joke, which ends with Roy Rogers saying, but first I'm going to sing you a little song. Uh, it doesn't matter what this, <laughs> the joke is about, except you can't tell it on the radio. And first I'm going to play you a little song, because it leads us to something quite interesting. Can any of you identify this anthem? You heard the word jihad in there. Yes. Does that clue you? <laughs> that is the more or less unofficial but widely credited national anthem of the Islamic State. Well, we're here at the Olympics next time I hear. <laughs> quite likely, quite likely. And it uh, is called My Ummah, uh, My Land, My my Community, My World. Um, and it celebrates uh, just as they were celebrating in Palmyra the other day, the rise of the Islamic State. In Palmyra, Syria, as you know, part of Syria that they control, they um, destroyed various civilizational monuments. And just to add a little of uh, uh, a little extra interest to the occasion, they beheaded the 83-year-old Minister of Antiquities of the country of Syria. Uh, therefore, maybe we should be talking about the Middle East once again. On the other hand, we could talk about what happened down in Roanoke, Virginia, just earlier this morning. Uh, we all have heard about the assassination while on air of two television reporters uh, by, and that assassination carried out by a former colleague of theirs. Um, but uh, what it raises is the larger question of how the digital world, how the whole uh, new communication system that dominates our lives now is altering our culture. Instantly, what most people were discussing once they got to the analysis phase uh, beyond the reportorial phase was when will the copycat murder of the next batch of TV reporters occur? There are two things to start with. Where do you want to start, Dick Sikoni? Well, let's start with uh, this morning's incident. Uh, I mean, this was just a matter of time before it was going to happen. Really? I mean, we've seen policemen shooting, uh, fleeing uh, 
fugitives in mm-hmm. the back uh, repeatedly on uh, cell phone cameras. Which reminds me that Black Lives Matter. Black Lives uh, Matter. That's a matter to be discussed also. Please go ahead. But, and, and uh, if you look all over the internet, you can find uh, on some uh, nefarious websites uh, women being murdered uh, that you have to pay money to watch this happen. Uh, the so-called snuff porn movies. Uh, law enforcement agencies would tell you some of them are real. They're not all staged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so television, which has been around longer than the Internet and longer than uh, cell phone cameras, uh, seems to have uh, taken a long time to have this occur. Uh, you know, it's almost surprising that it hasn't happened earlier. In terms of the But act- note that this fellow who did the murders and then died in the hospital a few hours later was also sending out on social media yes. mm-hmm. communications to all the world. And I think he even posted his own picturing, his own little uh, 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 cell camera version of the murder that he had just committed. Uh, well, I mean, I guess he, he was, uh, what do they call it, multi-platform uh, yes. kind of guy. <laughs> uh, but but I, as I say, I think it's almost surprising that we haven't had an incident like this prior to now. What makes this interesting is I heard about it this morning, um, went on my laptop immediately, went to YouTube, and it had already been posted, so I got to see it immediately. Uh, To see what exactly? uh, To see the the assault. The actual murder. Oh, yeah. It was live on TV. I heard them say it was. I did not look at YouTube to check it. Yeah, they're doing a remote on, I I forget what the subject was, something fairly mundane, and all of a sudden you hear the uh, shots being fired. But what's interesting about this, when you see CNN or Fox or any of the cable news uh, channels, uh, psychiatrists, and obviously being a psychiatrist yourself, you're aware of I am not a psychiatrist. I'm a mere psychologist. Oh, a psychologist yourself. Mm -hmm. But you probably know this... Anyway, is that they say one way to prevent the copycats uh, is not showing the perpetrator or is using his name. And CNN, I'm not kidding, was showing pictures of him over and over and over and over again all day today, uh, mentioning his name. Uh, They said, we're only going to show the video once once an hour. But they showed this guy's picture. Well, apparently that plays into people who have that kind of narcissistic psychoses and encourages them to do exactly what he just did. So it's curious that we now have this information. It's common knowledge. And yet CNN and all the others uh, fail to uh, recognize it. You know, you raise an interesting point, though. They play it once an hour. Yes. And some of the stations or networks refuse to play it at all. Is that right? Yes. And it's available on YouTube on demand to anyone. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I, I literally went to my laptop. Ticka, 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 there it was. So, so what do we think about the ethics of the networks who said we're not going to play at all? It'll disappear or, by tomorrow. Or CNN uh, playing it once an hour when it's available. I mean, yeah, you know, one of the so be- better Fox, judgments. So Fox News, if they've interdicted and said we will not play the actual yeah, right. slaying, will by tomorrow change their mind. Yeah, but... It, the other way to look at it is there there are no good guys in this because with the availability elsewhere, it's not as if one network holding the line on this is going to prevent anyone from seeing it. So the the other aspect of this uh, that I read fairly quickly after the original shooting was that they mentioned that in New York, uh, all of the networks immediately went to sort of a next level of preparedness in terms of instructions for all of their people, either in studio or out. We go to the Gene Siskel Theater, and you have that uh, network. I don't know whether it's ABC, which network is right out there. They're showing the news a couple times a day, and there are crowds out there. I mean, they talk about target practice for someone who is interested in doing something. 
Uh, and and this is a, a new thing. Now, new York, Fox News, a bunch of the networks have those kind of open air arenas for people to yeah. gather uh, because it adds sort of excitement and buzz uh, to what's going on. The second thing I want to throw out here, might as well be controversial and provocative, <laughs> uh, but if, if the races were reversed in this incident today, um, I think you would have had a firestorm similar to Charleston. And the fact that a guy who had been fired because he was always angry and accusing everyone at the workplace, apparently, of being racist towards him and making bigoted statements. He being the uh, kill, the a black man. Yeah. As uh, they call them in this country. Or right. right. And yeah. um, that would be part of the story. And you're not hearing really anything about that today. Well, but, but he had registered many complaints about many complaints. racism. All of them, all of them rejected uh, by yeah. everything from the network to the... Uh, and he had registered complaints about the racism of the two people That's right. he killed today. Correct. When he I, was still employed by that station. That's right. One of his uh, complaints was that uh, one of the, his victims uh, called him a monkey, mm -hmm. which reminded me of uh, Howard Cosell, mm -hmm. who once upon a time, uh, during a, a broadcast on Monday Night Football, called a punt returner for the Washington Redskins. Didn't call him, but uh, the, the fellow broke away into the clear, racing for a touchdown, and Howard Cosell shouted, look at that little monkey run. Mm-hmm. And because Howard Cosell was well-established and Monday Night Football was a big moneymaker, uh, he got away with a, a sincere apology mm -hmm. for having slipped. And I thought that young woman who died today didn't uh, get away as easily. It's pretty dangerous she may to not, say. We don't, we don't know if she said it. We no, don't know. No, of course not. Allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty dangerous to say anything in this world yeah. these days, whether you're on television, whether you're in a classroom uh, lecturing, whether you're writing a column for a newspaper. Maybe the ultimate truth was given a long time ago in World War II when the basic slogan among infantrymen was simply uh, keep your um, bowels open, your mouth closed, and never volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> Loose lips sink, sink ships. Uh, that's a polite version of the same. <laughs> but it's dangerous to be a public person. Mm -hmm. In any way. Well, as Richard pointed out, you know, with the uh, networks and their uh, open air opportunities. But, you know, when you think about it, uh, and there have been fictional uh, books and movies written about uh, terrorist attacks at sporting events. And again, you just wonder in this country, why doesn't it happen? 40,000 people at Wrigley Field, 80 days a year, uh, 80,000 people every Sunday in 16 uh, and, and, yeah, there's security and there's uh, metal checkers. But if someone like this man this morning wants to do harm to somebody else, it's a very easy thing to yeah, do. Yeah, but Osmonds but like FBI, NSA, and so on uh, often, uh, in fact, release the news, social voce, so to speak, but the, it, it gets around and it gets into the papers or wherever that uh, over the last year they have indeed squelched 20 different ter potential terrorist attacks. Uh, they're protecting us and saving us from what otherwise would be absolute horror uh, on all sides. I, I, so I, they claim or brag. So they claim. Yeah, they claim. I, and I think what they're saying, and I, I have no reason to disbelieve them, but the people that they are claiming they squelched are people that they've had under surveillance for some reason or yeah. another. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm talking about in a country of 325 million people, the number of disturbed mentally and, you know, this this guy this morning, I don't think the FBI could have smelled him out and said, we better get down to that TV station. This 
that that's not the kind of person they're going to get. They might get the big news in that realm is that the guy who uh, killed all those people in the uh, movie theater in Colorado, Holmes, uh, Holmes has now <clears throat> uh, not related to Sherlock. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, that he has now been confirmed to be sentenced for life uh, uh, and no possibility of parole. Big deal. Uh, yeah, I, I want to jump in and say the NSA says a lot of things and they make a lot of claims. But, uh, you know, one example would be the bombing in uh, at the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Yeah. These guys weren't I mean, on the radar. And clearly they were. They should have been. They, of course they should have been. And, but that, that gives you pause to think that maybe the system is not foolproof. And, and even when people are on the radar, the this guy on the train was supposedly known to three different intelligence yes. services in Belgium, Spain, and France, all of whom considered him a grave threat and had to be watched. Yeah. And he comes on with two weapons onto a high-speed train. Yeah, but his, his excuse was he was just going to hold people up. That's right. I love that. That's right. I'm, a they, I'm a robber, not a terrorist. But right. they do these things with more style uh, in the Middle East these days. I'm really quite struck by the ISIS news of this morning, not merely that they're uh, blowing up old temples in Palmyra, but that they took the 83-year-old scholar who is the Minister of Antiquities for, I think, the whole country of Syria yes. and chopped his head off. Yeah, I don't. Just it, as a, a way of underlining the importance of their destruction of some of the nearby temples. It's a level of barbarism that is uh, hard to imagine and hard to, <clears throat> pardon me, get your hands around because, my goodness, I mean— do you remember when the Taliban blew up the uh, stone Buddhas? Uh, Buddhas? Uh, and I mean, for some reason, and I, this sounds terrible, but because they did such heinous things towards human beings, but when they did that, it seemed to do something in the American psyche that finally, uh, you know, cemented their position as just monstrous. Is it time in America and in the Western world generally to acknowledge that there's a hell of a lot of jihadism associated with modern Islam? And it's not a mere troublesome 5%, and it's not that all the rest disapprove, but that it's one of the main themes running through Islamic religious life these days. It wasn't always there. It may very well ultimately fade away or be suppressed, but right now it's a large part of the reality of East-West conflict. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we, we kid ourselves. It's not politically correct. And we keep, we bend over backwards to try not, I mean, our own president can't say Islamic extremist. I mean, never has. Never it's has. preposterous. And so you're absolutely right. Um, the the uh, fellow from, from Spain who uh, tried to have the attack in, in France, you look, and it's over and over again. It's the numbers are, are expanding. ISIS is very successfully recruiting people. And now they're, ex, you know, they're exporting it. And I think we're going to see even more attacks um, in the next probably year to 18 months. How'd you like that swinging anthem of theirs? That, that was kind of cute. I mean, it was pretty. Well, your president also doesn't think uh, beheadings are so uh, atrocious because the Crusaders did worse. And, uh, uh -huh. you know, we, we've persecuted <laughs> Islamics uh, throughout the centuries. So this is sort of turnabout, uh, I guess. Well, he told them a long time ago in Cairo, almost eight years ago, seven years ago. Uh, his first major speech internationally after being inducted into the presidency, uh, that we were very guilty. Mea culpa, yeah. maxima culpa. Better he should have been inducted to the Arab into world, the Marine he said Corps. That. <laughs> Might have helped, yeah. all of us. Well, we have begun. I I'm just worried that WCGO is going to give us the Kurt Schilling treatment for uh, uh, agreeing with you here. 
and will be forever prohibited from being guests again on this program because you're not allowed to say that there is, in fact, something disproportionate among modern Islam compared to other societies in the world today, maybe not compared to well, barbarism co- that occurred a thousand years ago. I covered ago. it by saying that it's the case at the moment. It wasn't before, and undoubtedly we're heading towards some time when that uh, strain or trend will once again dissipate and minimize in the Islamic the, world. ESPN. But right now we cannot we cannot ignore it. I, 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 I'm not sure a whole lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. Do you think it really is going to dissipate down the road, or is this something uh, many generations of Americans and Westerners will have to contend with? I mean, th- this is... You know, they, they sort of laid dormant, so to speak, for about 800 years. Uh, once upon a time, around eight or 900, Damascus was the most advanced city in the world. I, I quote, not a learned scholar, but the movie Lawrence of Arabia, when <laughs> Alec Guinness says, we had streetlights when London was a swamp. Uh, I think he was probably right. And, and then somewhere along the Middle Ages, after Isabella and Philip kicked them out of Spain... They just decided they wanted to live like it was still the 800s. And it's been a long time. It's been 1,200 years that they've lived that way, and all of a sudden, at least a good proportion well, don't want to live that way anymore. The leading, they, the leading Western scholar of these matters is Bernard Lewis. Yes. Uh, at Princeton forever, Englishman by origin, now uh, about 98 or 99, and still... Older than you. Thank oh you very God. much. Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, he says, no, the, the the collapse and the difficulty began more recently than that. He sees it essentially as a consequence of World War I. Uh, and, uh, yeah. the, uh, the, and so long as the Ottoman Empire was there, Islam, in a way, had a significant and potent location in the world. With the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and then with the transformation of Turkey into a secular state by, uh, what was his name? Uh, Ataturk. Ataturk. Uh, Kemal Ataturk. Uh, that is the beginning of the dissipation or diminution of Islamic pride and Islamic sense of belonging and of having a major role in the world, and thus of Islamic jealousy, resentment, and revengeful uh, rage, not felt by all Muslims, not by most but felt by enough to make a real difference and to affect the construction of new kinds of very powerful and very troubling political movements. Well, and you and you can't ignore the establishment of uh, Israel in the of midst course. of all of this. I major mean, provocation. Too. Major provocation. Yeah. Right, and also, excuse me, also the, the the divvying up into countries that you know are just cobbled together almost <clears throat> seemingly randomly. They and so you have an an Iraq is a great example. Kurds, how, Shia, Sunni. How do you spell cobbled? K a v u l e d. Well, which is it? Kabul, the capital, or no? Afghan, that's <laughs> Afghanistan. I'm just oh, Kabul. I'm sorry. Yes, I make the I'm joke. Back. <laughs> I make the joke right now. I also call for some overdue commercials. And when we return, there's a great deal else to discuss, as we shall do after this. Hi, this is Milt Rosenberg. Would you like to hear my conversation with Margaret Thatcher, with Barack Obama, with Jimmy Carter, Carl Sagan, Henry Kissinger? for that matter, with uh, Charlton Heston and lots of other famous Hollywood stars? Or would you like to hear a discussion that we ran about the rise and fall of Greek civilization or the rise and fall of Roman civilization? 
or the history of American radio, or hundreds and hundreds of other topics and guests. They are all available for you in a great audio archive, which you get to by simply going to miltrosenberg.com. MiltRosenberg.com will take you to an audio archive which has built up over the last 40 years. Yes, there's a small paywall you got to get over, but if I say so myself, it's more than worth it, as many subscribers have attested. So go to MiltRosenberg.com, examine what's available there, join us. You'll learn something, maybe a lot. And today we are romping and rolling around the world's news. But the world includes the United States. And so I turn back to Richard Baer, a chief political correspondent for The American Thinker, to Richard Sacconi, former managing editor of the Chicago Tribune, to Scott Stantis, current cartoonist at the Chicago Tribune. And gentlemen, I read you uh, two paragraphs from a story in this morning's Washington Post. Quote, The possibility that Vice President Biden may jump into the 2016 presidential campaign is convulsing, that's a strong verb, is convulsing the network of wealthy Democrats that financed uh, President Obama's two White House bids, galvanizing hundreds underwhelmed by Hillary Rodham Clinton's performance. A wide swath, this uh, writer has good vocabulary, a wide (laughs) swath of party financiers is already convinced that Biden will make a late entry into the race, and a sizable number are now contemplating backing him, including some who have already signed on with Clinton, according to more than a dozen top Democratic fundraisers around the country. So what does all that tell you? Uh, well, it tells me I, I want Joe to run Joe run as a cartoonist. He's great. Um, he could also run. Interestingly, he has some he has a model going forward, which is, of all things, Donald Trump. If he runs as the, you know, you know, speak from the hip, you know, tell the truth as he sees a kind uh-huh. of guy. Uh-huh. I think that makes him a very attractive candidate because the Democrats certainly are having troubles with Hillary. Uh, she broke the law. She I mean, she committed a felony with the emails. If the reports of what she did with them is true. Uh, there's no argument about that. They're not going to um, nominate a socialist in Bernie Sanders. Um, and so, but he's a Jewish guy from New York. <laughs> oh well, okay, yeah. What could go? Oh wait, Al Smith. Um, <laughs> oh no, he was Catholic. Never mind. I'm thinking of I mean, <laughs> the great senator from Vermont is the Jewish guy from New York. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, but, they've they, they've taken over all of northern uh, uh, Vermont <laughs> around. Uh, Burlington. Around Burlington, exactly. Please continue. So, so with Biden running, I mean, here's a th- but here's the thing. I mean, Hillary raised $35 million this last reporting uh, yeah. uh, period. Um, she's still, she's stumbling, she's fumbling, she's bumbling. Uh, she's, there's going to, at some point, you just know the press is going to pick up her narrative that she is just a victim again of the vast right-wing conspiracy. And I think she'll get her traction again, and I think she'll be the nominee. It's quite. But Biden would be interesting. He make it. He would make it interesting. Well, why would Biden be giving this serious consideration? Yeah. uh, Apparently, his son, who recently died, um, encouraged him to do it. And I I actually read a report in the last uh, few days that people around him say he has been much more sober, a lot less flip Uh. uh, since this happened. And you know, when you've buried your wife and two different kids over a period of thirty years, whatever you think of his politics, that's. He's had a, some tough stuff well, to his, deal with. His life, his family life began very tragically. Yeah. Just shortly after. He was elected to the Senate. Uh, and that's when his wife and 
One, one or one of his kids were killed right. in and an the, automobile accident. Yeah, and then the one who survived is the one who just died. Yeah. So the uh, I, I am cautious about whether he'll uh, get in. And the, the reason is uh, he's done this twice before. He never even got to 1% in, uh, in the polls. He did terribly in the few primaries. Well, what what in, do you make? What, one, what should one make of the Trump excitement? Uh, he is no, let's, indeed. Let's let's not get away from Biden for one second. No, I don't mean to. But oh, uh, okay. There's a populist turn in what Trump is doing. Oh, his, completely. His Trumpery, which really has a large portion of the country enthused, uh, and you are suggesting that Biden has some of the same quality. Yeah, I mean Scott Scott actually said that, and I, I agree with him. But I think you you may see a more sober J- Joe yeah. as a candidate this time if he does go in. We'll stay with well, Joe I, before we get to Trump. Go uh, ahead. Uh, well. I think there's another reason Biden is uh, seriously considering this. And I think he's gotten signals uh, from the Obama White House Mm -hmm. that they would be very supportive. And I I think there's, uh, you know, the the technical operation that the Obama campaign put together in 2008 and repeated again in 2012, uh, all the ground roots waved to win primaries and win elections. Uh, that's all in place. Mm-hmm. And if uh, the president wanted to pass that on to Joe Biden, uh, that would make him a very, very viable candidate. And I agree with Hillary's fundraising abilities. She can, Her own foundation can finance the whole <laughs> campaign. She doesn't need to raise it. But there's, there's enough money in this country under the current law if somebody thought Joe Biden was viable. He can have as much money as he needs. And there run. are a number of embarrassments that she carries, oh. or, or quite apart from mm-hmm. the email thing, going way back to her husband's nocturnal misadventures you know, and her full tolerance, public tolerance of that, and her full alliance with him in that, uh, quote, time of trouble, not to mention all the money they've raised, not to mention the way in which they're using their Clinton Foundation. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think she's, A, been a travesty towards feminism, if you believe in equal rights. Uh, the fact that she uh, allows herself in her marriage to be abused for political power and keep power. The second part, which was very telling, it was almost a Ted Kennedy 1980 moment when they said you were, you've been a, a U.S. senator, you've been secretary of state. What, what's your proudest, what are some of your proudest accomplishments? And she kind of stammered for a while and finally blurted out that she put in, she traveled more miles than any other secretary of state. And so that's not an accomplishment. That's an achievement, I guess you, and she has more, you know, miles that she can spend on other things, I suppose, but she couldn't say what her accomplishments are. And I think that's very telling. If I were Hillary Clinton or a Hillary Clinton supporter, the Republican debate would have caused me great embarrassment when Donald Trump, in explaining that he spreads money around to everyone, said, I gave money to the Clinton Foundation to get her to come to my wedding, and she did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is very close <laughs> to calling someone something you don't want to call in polite conversation. Well, then we come to the phenomenon of Trump. We're about to pause for some commercials. But after that, there is a kind of a mystery about how Trumpery works so well when just about every day he does something that ordinary political pundits would would have predicted in in pre-Trump days. Uh, he's just killed himself. He's just suicided as a political figure. But he gets away with it all. And indeed, 
every grocery of his seems to further endear him to the ever-swelling uh, public clamor. I don't really quite know why, and I'm sure you do, and we'll explain it right after this. Yes, do by all means get those calls in at that number, 847-475-1590, or for email, and that seems to be uh, the preferred mode uh, these days, uh, the email address, milt, which is M-I-L-T, milt at 1590wcgo.com, milt at 1590wcgo.com. And also you can now give us uh, questions or comments on the Facebook page, simply Milt Rosenberg Facebook, and all of that will be gathered together and we'll read some of it and present it to our guests. Those guests being Richard Baer, uh, Richard Sacconi, and Scott Stantis. Uh, I've got an unusual thought that I want to just briefly start you with as we go to Trump. If his name was not Trump, uh, after all, that's just an accident of birth. Fred Trump was his father. My father used to contract to his father, Fred Trump. My father was a painting contractor in Brooklyn, and Fred Trump developed a good part of, Man- of Manhattan Beach, uh, built little homes there, some of which were painted by my father's company. But if he were Fred Coleman or Fred Johnson, would it all work just the same way? Or is there something about the emphatic, percussive name, Trump? Oh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. My goodness. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. It's Trump. It's got authority. It's got yeah. weight. But, uh, you know, if it was just, you know, Fred Coleman coming up, then no. Because, he, A, Fred Coleman didn't have a reality show for X amount of years. Uh, Fred Coleman wasn't on the, our national consciousness for what? Two, almost two decades, more than two decades. Three and, when, decades. and when you're Trump, you're sort of dominating and no, beating sir. somebody. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the um, uh, he would be on the on the, the kids' table debate if he was even in the race. Uh, <laughs> he would be registering below 1% because he wouldn't, wouldn't have any name recognition. Well, you know, I think, what if his name were Ross Perot? Uh, With all that money and all that ability... I mean, Donald Trump is a very capable guy. I mean, his his companies go bankrupt left and right, but they also make a lot of money. He'll be the first to tell you that. And he really uh, does have about twelve billion, or, yeah, or thereabouts. And you know, he can finance his own campaign, much the way Ross Perot did. Yeah. So I, yeah, Trump is uh, the the name is fascinating, but I'm not sure if he weren't Fred Coleman, whose father was a multimillionaire developer in yeah. Manhattan. And he had been in our national spotlight for three decades and married to Ilana and had his own TV show. Fred Coleman would be just as capable right. if he spoke like Donald Trump. Right. But but the thing is, Trump actually has made his name the brand. Yes. And that's why someone like a Coleman, who didn't have that same sort of attachment of name to accomplishments, wouldn't be fighting to put a 20-foot letters on a building in Chicago. <laughs> but now let's talk about the, the persona of this Donald Trump. What does he project? I have a terrible admission to make here as a political observer or a political commentator. I sincerely and truly don't understand this phenomenon. I don't. I mean, I, I get the emotional. I could see it spiking. I was one of those who said that, that it's just it's going to spike. It's going to last a week and a half and it's going to go back down. Obviously, it hasn't. In fact, it's getting more, if anything, it's getting more traction. You. you say you don't understand it. I don't. But do you enjoy it? You you have to you want, I I tuned into the debate for the first time not because, out of obligation and watching you know ten people kind of I think we're all enjoying it yeah well, yeah and I think if Biden jumps into the Democratic race that I mean that gets interesting and the fact of the matter is Bernie Sanders has made it really interesting 
because he's just spouting Maoist stuff and everyone <laughs> and the 25 and youngers are loving it. Well, part part of the appeal, of course, is that Trump is a television personality. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think the polls are not accurate because a lot of it is just name recognition. You know, do you like, they're not saying, who do you know best? You read those polls, they're almost identical to who do you like? So I think it's all the people who know, they don't know the other, right. what, 15 people? Right. But you know, when I got into journalism 100 years ago, <laughs> one of the things they told me was there would be no math. <laughs> and I, if I were still covering <laughs> politics today, uh-huh. I would really have a problem with keeping track of 16 candidates. But here's a great question I have for you guys. Um, looking forward, I mean, we're getting closer and closer to Iowa. We're getting closer and closer to New Hampshire. Does Trump, does all of this translate into him winning those, the, the caucuses in Iowa and the first primary in New Hampshire and in uh, South uh, Carolina? Do you well, remember Howard Dean? Oh, sure. Do you remember <laughs> yeah. Howard Dean? Yes. Okay. Think Howard Dean. You think, you think so? Yeah. I don't think so. They've resuscitated him. I've seen him as a commentator yeah. in recent days. Yeah, I, I think that this part of this appeal is if you ever saw the movie Network, yeah. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That yes. is- the Trump audience at this point. Yes, it's just it is. A sort of a visceral response to someone saying, are you as fed up as I am? Uh, and that has that gets people across the political constellation, not just natural conservatives. In fact, one survey suggested that people who are less affiliated in general with politics, less involved, are more likely to be Trump supporters than people who are particularly issue conscious. But the second part of it is he supposedly has now hired professional operatives in both New Hampshire and Iowa, which means he is enjoying this ride. And I don't know where it goes, but there are primaries where it's winner take all, like Florida. And if he bombards that state and you got Rubio and Bush splitting the natural Florida vote and he takes everything else, he could be in basically a odds-on favorite and also you by men- March. Also, you mentioned Iowa, and the current poll data from Iowa has him in the lead there. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Iowa's kind of a different uh, bird altogether, only because it's a caucus state, yes. and that's a that's a boots on the ground. Yeah, Pentecostal uh, tend to tend to you know win that. You had Huckabee, and you've had Pat Robertson, and you had Santorum, Santorum four years ago. So, I'm not sure. Then that's my question: Is does all of this hoopla and all of this attention and his position in the polls translate into him winning? primaries and well winning and I, delegates you know i think you're right about iowa certainly and, and i think you can make an argument that the new hampshire voter out of just local pride is far more sophisticated than a national poll and i know he's leading some polls in new hampshire but again i think when it gets down to that primary they, they have a, a long-standing century-old pride about picking the right guy to be president Again, as my dentist said, I don't want him to be president, but I like everything he says. And I think, uh, and I want to go back to one thing because Scott just mentioned we're not too far from Iowa. Well, we are really. It's still five months, four months. Uh, But the Washington Post editorial that you read said, if Joe Biden makes a late entry, we're 17 months away from an election. Once upon a time, late entry meant you jumped in in June, mm-hmm. not, not in <laughs> September of the previous year. Um, I'm told by Mike, our engineer, that uh, somebody's very eager to talk with you on the phones. Uh, my screen isn't properly tuned at the moment, so I don't know the name of the caller. But caller, what's your name? Michael. Yes, sir. Go, go ahead, Michael. 
on the Trump phenomenon, one one question I have because I've been hearing some things anecdotally is that uh, yes, uh, Trump appears to uh, show up well in the polls, but when people are asked the second question, "Would you vote for him?" though, "Would you really vote for him?" I'm sensing, and it's only anecdotal that it's it's oh no no we just enjoy it right now. But have there been any polls of that nature that have really gone and asked that second question? Would you really vote for him? Oh, sure there are. Yeah. It's an excellent question, and there, there has been a little bit of a drop-off, but not enormous at this point, uh, which is, I guess, surprising, similar to the fact that the expectation that after some of his comments and some of the things he said, which have sort of irritated various groups around the country, his numbers have risen. So there's some there's a wave going on at the moment now, which is sort of hard to do, to tell you where it ends or where the bottom falls out. Well, Mike, hang in there. Let's listen to Trump in his latest Trumpery with that Jorge Ramos fellow. <laughs> just, I guess it was yesterday. Here it is. Trump has a question about immigration. Uh, immigration plan. Okay, who's uh, next? Yeah, please. Trump, I have a question. Excuse me, sit down. You weren't called. Sit down. No, no. Sit down. No, I'm a... Sit down. An immigrant. Go ahead. I have the right to other No, you don't. You haven't been called. Oh, I, have the, I have the right to other Go back to Univision. Go ahead. You cannot deport 11 million. Go ahead. You cannot deport 11 million people. You cannot deport a 1900. Go ahead. You cannot deny citizenship to children. Sit down, please. You weren't called. I'm a reporter and I have. Don't touch me, sir. Don't touch me. Go. You cannot touch me. I have the right to ask a question. And then the big guy pushes him out of the room, only to bring him back later. Interestingly, let's go to, to Michael on the phone. How did that affect you when you heard it or saw it? Well, you know what? Here, here's what I thought to myself. I said, you know what? The Trump phenomenon in 2000 for the 2016 election, it's facilitated by the mainstream uh, press that likes this entertainment factor. Now, if you go back to 2012 and you take any of the candidates that acted that way, they would have been destroyed by the mainstream press. So I think this is being pushed forward by. Uh, just for the entertainment value. I, uh -huh. I don't think this has legs to last. Yeah, he, I, he won't last the whole. I think there are actually two other issues with the mainstream media. One is they think Trump is helping destroy the Republican Party, which is in their interest because they want a Democrat right. to get elected. Uh, but the second is he's wonderful for business. When they have two candidates on each Sunday, one of them is always Trump, because as long as one of them is Trump, the ratings are five times as high as Meet the Press ever would get on a Sunday. If they just had Marco Rubio and, and Mike Huckabee, the ratings are down in the tank. So th what you get is there's 16 candidates, and they get half the time, and one other candidate gets half the time. So you wonder why he's leading. Let me thank the caller. That was an interesting contribution. Uh, let me observe, just as we're about to pause, for some commercials. In a way, what you've got here is polyspeak fatigue. I've just coined that. Polyspeak meaning the way politicians talk. We've heard it again and again. We've heard all the invasions, all the verbal formulae, uh, all the apparent or uh, obvious mendaciousness. And uh, exhausted by that, we'd like an ill-mannered guy who uh, isn't embarrassed by his being ill-mannered and who is taking all those risks because what the hell? I've got $12 billion anyway. Uh, there's something that all four of us, I think, and it's confessional rather than uh, self-defensive, all four of us find somehow endearing, even though we hope he doesn't wind up as president of the United States. Or do any of the four of us secretly envision 
gee, maybe he would be president. That really wouldn't be so bad after all. Keep that in mind. I want your answer on that after this. Uh, some of that email has, of course, already been arriving, and we'll be sharing it uh, during the second hour. Right now, I want to persist with that audacious question I was raising a moment ago. Does any of you, in his secret heart of hearts, sort of half-wish that maybe Trump were the next president? It at least would be a true difference from all that we've been through over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Richard Ciccone. Well, to be very honest about it, I think certainly one of my favorite presidents, uh, if not one of our very best presidents, had very little uh, experience in national or foreign affairs until Franklin Roosevelt died and then Harry Truman mm -hmm. Uh, uh, a used pants salesman from Missouri <laughs> who was a bag man for the Pendergast mob, uh, I think became one of our finest presidents and showed uh, you mm -hmm. know, great courage, uh, great uh, decision-making. Donald Trump is not a stupid man. I suspect if someone explains... He just, play, he just plays one. He plays one. <laughs> but I suspect the fact that he didn't know the Iranian foreign ambassador was visiting Moscow or had any clue to who he was, I think if he were sitting in the White House, he might get informed about that kind of thing. Now, having said that, I'm not saying I'm prepared to vote for him, but uh, I think we've had people come to that office with... Uh, no greater experience in other affairs than he's had. And we've had people come to that office who has not accomplished as much in life as he has. Well, Sakoni has gone half the confessional distance. Anybody want to go further? I would hate it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I happen to love America, so I would, I would, yeah. I would hate it. You think it would? How have you survived the last eight years? Uh, skin of my teeth. Um, and he has big ears, so they're fun to draw. Uh, you think it would produce a disaster? I I have an old-fashioned notion that I want someone who has thought seriously about the issues mm -hmm. and has a serious approach to them. I'm not sure that Trump, for all of his bombast, has really articulated any kind of um, uh, stand, any kind of position, any kind of core values other than making fun of people. Hmm. Well, let's get the Mexicans, the illegal Mexicans out in large number. Um, <clears throat> it's um, rebuild the military to prime potency so that all the world will uh, do us honor and will be frightened of us. <clears throat> Beyond that, it's, I guess, build a lot of buildings. Yeah, I mean, his campaign theme, the hats uh, that they're selling or, or giving away are uh, uh, time to make America great again. Yeah, uh, that is the general slogan. Time to win uh, because there's a perception that America is losing. Um, I think one of the interesting sidelights of the Trump phenomenon is two other non-politicians are rising in the polls. Uh, ben Carson, a neurosurgeon, yeah. and Carly Fiorina, mm -hmm. who has also business experience both at Lucent and Hewlett Packard. I mean, somewhat controversial at Hewlett Packard. Not everyone thinks she did such a great job there. Some people think she had a tough, a tough situation mm -hmm. that she absorbed. But they are being considered more seriously, which suggests there is a general disgust with sort of establishment absolutely. politicians, absolutely. which is. Uh, Hurting Hillary, I think, more than anyone because she is the ultimate manufactured candidate in terms of everything that's I had that, that's that reaction to Ben Carson uh, the first time I met him, which was at that prayer breakfast where with uh, the president sitting only a few seats away, he essentially took uh, an anti-presidential uh, approach 
with regard to current issues and spoke really quite clearly but with a certain uh, facade of gentleness, uh, all of which I think worked wonderfully well. And uh, that's my cell phone going. Do you have to get that? Because we can wait. I've just, I've just closed it. <laughs> Sorry, I should have turned it off before. You know, we say this, and, and I think probably the Trump uh, uh, gospel that uh, almost everyone responds to well is, let's get rid of all those people in Washington. I mean, everybody buys into that, except on Election Day. And mm-hmm. That's when we reelect mm-hmm. every incumbent we can find on the ballot. And when we nominate people to be president, we nominate senators and we nominate governors. And I think, yeah. But uh, Ben Carson and Carly Fiorino, who I thought was the star of the debates by far, yeah, uh, are moving up in the polls, but they're not going to get nominated. Uh, they're just not going to happen. Well, but it has happened. I want to throw a name out here that I doubt we've talked about maybe ever, <laughs> and that's Wendell Wilkie, uh, the 1940 Republican nominee, beat out the establishment Republican candidates. Uh, of course, ran against uh, FDR for a third term. I mean, the parallels are really kind of interesting in the sense that you have a dynastic family trying for a third term. You're doing it again. Uh, could the Republican Party again nominate a businessman versus a politician? Uh, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting side by side comparison. I don't think it's it's, it's totally unrelated. Wilkie, well, of course, was by no means uh, as. Uh, Publicly exhibitionist as no, no. He Trump was also is. smart. He also had some gravitas. He wrote and spoke eloquently about yeah. issues facing the United States. Yeah, he, he had he, he had presented himself at least, if not as a politician, as a uh, student of government. I mean, he he had you're right. Presented uh, he'd written on uh, Nazi Germany and uh, the situation in Europe extensively. Uh, he was well known as a thoughtful person on foreign affairs. Uh, uh, but well, he was also a Democrat very shortly before he got yes. the nomination. Well, that's true. As it was Trump. So was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Well, a little less, a little wider. A little wider. Period of time yeah. for him but to But you know, uh, when I, I think when Richard was mentioning before, or perhaps both of you, uh, the uh, Sunday morning talk shows, when you have Trump, you get ratings. 1980 was the same thing. Reagan was on every Sunday with one of the other six because Ronald Reagan got ratings, much for the same reason Donald Trump. Everybody knew who Ronald Reagan was. He was the guy who introduced Death Valley Days on TV. I think one rule now suggests itself. If you ran four years ago and didn't make it through the primaries, don't try to do it again four years later. Every one of the rehabilitated former candidates who's now in there again is uh, is almost almost invisible, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans have a history of nominating people who have lost before, either in the primaries or, the or in the election. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like you're next in line, which is yeah. why they tend to nominate 71-year-old people. Um, this time they actually had, I thought, some good people in the field, and they're getting no exposure. I mean, yeah. you look at that debate the, in uh, oh. Cleveland— and Trump got asked 11 questions, yeah. and I think Rubio and Cruz were asked three. <laughs> so you just it's not a fair fight. And Trump started with a total insult to the party. Right. Will you yeah. consider, uh, will you rule out uh, running as a third uh, party candidate? No, I won't. Well, you know, the follow-up to that question, and Megyn Kelly came up with the feminist question right afterwards, yeah. which irritated Trump. The follow-up should have been to ask all the other people, will you support Mr. Trump? 
Yeah. I mean, that that would have been the fair way to do it. He was being he was saying, I'm not sure. What if the other nine would have said real quick? I thought that the, the, the Republican field at that debate was impressive. Yes, they are. All in all. Quite so. We are due for some commercials. And there are yet other questions that need to be raised about other problems in the world. And I'll surprise you with one or two of those after this. And we return directly to this uh, perfect panel. Perfect because all three of them know just about everything there is to know when it comes to political history and political and the political present. Um, and because they speak well and uh, almost with as much forwardness as we get from Donald Trump. But uh, they speak at a different, indeed, at a higher level. They are Richard Baer, chief political correspondent for The American Thinker, a great uh, location on the internet. Richard Sacconi, who is these days professing American studies and journalism at the University of Notre Dame on a part-time basis, and is, of course, the former managing editor and former political editor of the Chicago Tribune. Scott Stantis, who's the very present political cartoonist of the Chicago Tribune itself. And, gentlemen, another little musical quiz. Here's um, the anthem of another country of some interest to us, as you will realize. Any takers, any guesses? Iran. Close, but no cigar. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I don't it's know. One, it's one of them. It's Iraq? in Arabic. Iraq? Nope. <laughs> it's Syria. Oh. Uh, uh, whose president aspires to be our ally in <laughs> putting down the danger from Iran. Uh, he's the ally not so much of the president of the United States, but the one he hopes will emerge who will undo the U.S.-Iran pact. That is, is that a consummation, devoutly or somewhat to be wished? Somewhat to be wished. Somewhat. Should we league with this Assad fellow? You know, we we are the the current uh, president. Actually, if you recall, drew the line, the red line yeah. in, the, in sand, the sand, and so and then quickly forgot about it, which seems to be the uh, mantra of their which president policy. Assad. Crossed with impunity. Oh sure, why? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, you know it's Obama. Yeah, I, What's going to happen? I mean, Assad right now controls twenty to twenty-five percent of what is Syria, and Iran is trying to make sure that that part of Syria remains under his control because it's how they funnel weapons to Lebanon, which then gets them to Hezbollah, so they can threaten Israel and Damascus. So they basically got the capital and the areas that are bordering Lebanon, and the, and the Islamic State has. A good portion of it, but not all of it. Other not all groups. Of it. There are other groups too that are. Yeah. And it's it's sort of Syria has become Lebanized, but with without the Shiites in the south all congregating in one area and the Christians in areas. But of course, of the I turned to Syria with 
its national anthem as a way of getting us back to the Middle East. And it's uh, an ultimate incredible mess. The only stable country there is Egypt, comparatively stable, uh, if the Brotherhood doesn't come back, and Israel. And, uh, and Egypt's, the, Egypt's the Muslim country the administration likes the least at this point. I know. Because they replaced their favorites, which was the Muslim Brotherhood leader, Mohamed Morsi. This has been a rather unusual American presidency, I would say. Oh, unusual? Is that the, is that the <laughs> word? I would say what st- word would scattered, use? hurtful, uh, uh, erosive. I, I don't know. This, 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 I don't have my thesaurus in is front of me. Is that what comes from hanging around Hyde Park? <laughs> and where does it come from? Seriously. I think it comes from the liberal uh, conceit that um, democracy is basically a bad idea, that America is always wrong. Uh, and hence, Israel being our very close ally is always wrong. I mean, where does the anti-Semitism on our college campuses come from? I mean, it's 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 obvious, and it's and it's it's preposterous, and I, it's a fight that I fight all the time, and I think I know all of us in this room do as well. That um, you know, you think anti-Semitism now characterizes quote the American campus? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's a fascinating uh, uh, video. This kid, uh, and I think it was. Berkeley. I could be wrong, but let's say Berkeley. And he stood on the steps of the, of the uh, library and he, and he held an Israeli flag and occasionally said something pro-Israel. But not, And he was cursed. People were yelling at him. After an hour, he put it down and he picked up an, uh, the flag of ISIS, the Islamic State. And no one said a word. That tells you where our college campuses are today. No one shouted Allah Akbar? No, they did not. Well, well, not what, that, but nothing. What about the University of California at Irvine that banned the American flag? I mean, you know, what's going on on our college? When campus? and where did they ban the American on flag? On their campus. You could not bring an American flag on. They, they reversed their decision today <coughs> or yesterday, late yesterday. What was the rationale for that? It was offensive to people uh, mm-hmm. who were not American. Uh-huh. Symbol of oppression. Well, yeah. The American flag is a symbol of oppression. Right. And and there was, uh, in the spring, I forget the number, two, three, four uh, California high school students, in a California high school, mm-hmm. I should say, uh, were sent home for wearing T-shirts with American flags on Cinco de Mayo because it would offend all the Mexicans celebrating Cinco de Mayo. So you couldn't wear a T-shirt with an American flag on the school that I day. think perhaps one can... <clears throat> Understand. We have we have already understood, but one can underline the understanding of the popularity of Trump. He is saying, "To hell with all of these anti-American American politicians." He's saying, "Let us be proud and simply forceful again in the world, and not hide our identity." Incidentally, he's also condemning political correctness. He's used the term as I think no other candidate uh, has as easily. Uh, there is something. Um, Simple and, and there's simple honesty, right? And it's something very emotional. Either it's, he's got the honesty, or he rouses. He appeals to something which we simply, honestly, but furtively feel. Right. I mean, our our country collectively, um, the 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 PC police, as it were, have are in full force now. It's almost like the uh, religious police in Tehran. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you say anything out of line that they see even remotely offensive to anybody. Well, if you say more than five words in English, you're going to offend somebody. And uh, we're now in a climate that, as a, as a, as a commentator, mm-hmm. every day, I, you would 
be shocked to see some of the responses of the st- of the work I do. You've got clear views as a cartoonist. They are clearly conservative, and right. what you have said critically here about the president and with regard to other matters is reflected in your cartoons. That's a very public presence. What do you get in the mail and all the uh, oh, well, you, and, exactly what you would expect. I am a racist. I am uh, a white male, which that part's true. Uh, white entitlement, uh, and I mean, it's it's interesting that white male is a slur that you can now. That's the one you can say. That's the one that yeah. you can say with impunity. Um, it's and my mail reflects that all the time, all the time. And do they call Tribune management and urge that you be fired? Oh, instantly? of course, of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, one of the things going on is there is a, a reaction to sort of the, the progressive push that we are the smartest ones in the room. So we can basically engineer society and we sort of have the nuanced understanding of what's going on overseas. And people actually think they're stupid and they prefer someone who would make common sense decisions. And they believe Trump, if he actually sat down at a desk and looked at the options in the Middle East, he'd come to the right one because he's not a liberal idiot. Well, I think it's the Harry Harry Truman syndrome. Harry Truman didn't have a clue about the Marshall Plan, but when they presented it, he said, "That's the right thing to do. Let's go do it." Uh, you know, and I, I think there is that sense about Trump that he might do the right thing, and we certainly have lost faith in all of the people who are back there. And, and Milt, you started off this segment by talking about the Middle East and every, you know, one, one of the great failings of the Obama administration for putting aside his own uh, feelings and and the, the way he is practically uh, genuflected before Arab leaders is they had no clue that the Arab Spring was coming. They sat there for three years and their intelligence agents, I don't know what they were doing. They had no clue that this was going to arise and what to do about it. Could America take advantage? Should America just stay out of it, not get in trouble with it? We just reacted, and we reacted poorly in every single nation. And the liberal response to this, the the Obama response was, okay, the the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, that's what caused all this this mess to to flame up. It was all George Bush's fault. It's all George, but how do you explain Libya? How do you explain that's, that's Hillary's and that is Obama's fault and they had no idea what came next. None. Kill uh, Gaddafi and things are going to be rosy. Well, that's not how things work there. No. And they haven't. And they had an example with in Iraq. So what's their excuse on that one? Well, you raise that against when you're talking to our liberal friends and they go silent or, you know. <laughs> Call you racist. <laughs> well, the whole play in Syria was wrong completely. Everything they did with Assad was totally wrong. I mean, the, the left actually claims that climate change is one of the major causes of the Arab Spring. I kid you not, that that's really what caused the drought in Tunisia, which had this guy blown, you know, burning himself up, which started the reaction there. And uh, that's how to, is related to what's been going on in Syria. Uh, and, and that's a natural. I mean, if you can get a twofer, Putting, putting, that's wonderful. You'll be be glad to know if you missed the news that there are some people on the fringe of the Democratic Party, I suppose, who've actually been whispering, maybe it's time to bring back Al Gore as presidential candidate. And and, and Al Gore has has made so much money and is living, you know, I think fat and happy at the moment uh, that he would not go in unless he really thought 
that this is an, an open race, meaning that he'd have a good chance to win. Biden is more likely to enter a race with a low probability of winning than Gore is. And Gore actually toyed with the idea recently. Yeah. Uh, this floated the idea, and he came out within about 48 hours of saying, this isn't going to happen. But speaking mm-hmm. of presidents and whether you're tired of them and want them to be replaced, uh, how do you feel about the current president of China? Uh, look what China has possibly done to the world in terms of economic devastation. I was speaking with uh, Peter Lewis, who's the editorial cartoonist down at Newcastle, Australia, and they have a very Asia-centric view of... To be uh, sure. Uh, uh, and uh, his take on him, and he told me this... F- on a, a, a number of months ago, I, I didn't pay a heck of a lot of attention as much as I should have. And this guy's a despot. They're cracking down on dissent harder than they ever have before. Uh, they're controlling the economy. Their stock market is preposterous because of the manipulation in it. Uh, obviously, devaluing the yen twice in a week so they can, uh, you know, have. Uh, more success with exporting. Uh, he is a very bad man, but this is what happens when communists pretend to be capitalists. Well, they have elections in China. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I think the... Is there a Donald... Is there a Chinese variant of Donald Trump coming along? Yeah. I, I Trying to figure out what the real numbers are in China uh, is, is guesswork. Of course. If they tell you 7% growth... That could mean it's not going to be higher than that, but it could well be lower. And the question is, by how much? Um, But the fact that they've taken these moves and taken these steps in the last few months uh, is a signal that something more serious is going on. Not kind of a soft landing from 8% growth to 7%, but this debt overhang, which is enormous in China in terms of ratio of debt to GDP, much higher than the United States. Now, a moment of strange and abject humility from the rather too self-possessed host. I put to you the question, what important event or series or process in the world today uh, have I neglected to ask you about? Yes. Cubs? The Cubs. <laughs> the Cubs. The Cubs have won tw- How many games? They've won 21 out of 25. I mean... So a world, at last, a World Series... In Chicago. You can get the, if somebody could bring a title to Boston and then he comes over to Chicago. Yeah. It could happen. He should be sainted. He should be sainted. All right. <laughs> and that's about it. Nothing else in the oh, world. Oh, no, we have uh, the Iran deal, nuke deal, which yeah. continues well, to. We've mentioned it, but we haven't be... directly addressed what, if anything, can be done about it. Isn't it, in fact, uh, to strike uh, the uh, the francophonic note, is it not, in fact, a fait accompli? One would think, although there is uh, still seems to be an awful lot of dissent, you know, even among Democrats in the Senate. Yes. Um, so will it be will it be passed there? Will they pass resolutions against it? Uh, all of a sudden, we're learning about side deals, secret side deals. I mean, the whole thing is just stunk from beginning to end. Instead of being forthright with the American people, and I think that that speaks to the Americans' people's suspicion of something like this, whether or not the Obama administration actually has the mechanisms in place to have a genuine and and workable treaty. All right. Apart from what America does or doesn't do on a reactive mm. basis, uh, uh, what should and what will Israel do? Well, we just saw a few days ago that uh, as early as 2010 and 11, uh, the prime minister, current prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu, was uh, much in favor of attacking Iran's nuclear facilities. Well, he's been saying that for some time. Well, uh, I think, but this was a very serious strategic meeting with all of his cabinet. I mean, they were... They were on the verge, uh, according to the former defense minister, 
Uh, 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 they were I, on the verge I, twice. If it, twice, or, yeah. yes, twice. I, I think, <clears throat> I think it ties in with ISIS, and I think it ties in with what Richard was saying about Syria, uh, the composition. I think of ISIS. Uh, dominates much more of Syria and starts to infiltrate into Lebanon and Jordan, which is very likely possibility. Then Israel is going to find their backs up against the wall everywhere. They're going to have, have potential invasion on the ground, uh, Iran threatening. I, I, if they attacked Iranian nuclear facilities of any sort, would uh, the three countries, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, what would the third one be? I sound rather like a Democratic Kuwait. candidate. Who? A Kuwait. Kuwait. No, I'm thinking of one of the larger ones. Um, at any rate, well, you can ra raise the Turkey, whichever. E Egypt. Egypt is the one I was re really reaching for. Yes, quite right. Would some of those anti-jihad or anti-Islamic uh, um, uh, uh, Islamic empire uh, states... Would they stand with Israel? Yeah, I mean, there, there's some remarkable things that have been occurring the last The Saudis few weeks. have sort of been quietly encouraging Israel. That's what one reads. S Saudis have been on panels with Israelis in the last few weeks after sort of denying their existence as human beings. Yeah. They're appearing and making similar kind of comments about the strategic threats and the problems and, and with Washington. Jordan was the one I left out. Yeah. Because both Jordan and Egypt are Arab nations who are... Yeah. They, uh, they, these countries impact relationships, right? Uh, cold though they may be, but have yeah. peace with those with Israel. Yeah, these countries are not in love with Israel. They've got big issues with Israel, and they will have big issues with Israel, uh, and they still don't want him in the area. But they have a much bigger threat now. Israel's not a threat to Saudi Arabia or to Jordan or to Egypt. In fact, Israel is assisting Egypt in getting essentially the weapons and financial aid from the United States. Um, uh, the APAC was lobbying to get American aid restored to Egypt so that they could fight well, in Sinai. if 16 months from now, Israel still feels the threat from Iran and these other possible threats, and the president of the United States is not opposed in policy to Israel taking out the Iranian nuclear facility, I don't think there's any doubt that they would do it. I, I think the major the deterrent to what Netanyahu Netanyahu and his cabinet have wanted to do is it's against U.S. policy. That's right. Yeah, they that's don't right. want to anger their best friend in the world, even though. Have we ever? Have any of you ever thought seriously about a second Clinton presidency? About what a Hillary Clinton presidency would? Oh, uh, sure, come of course. Yeah, would, I mean, I think that's a very serious possibility. Uh, still, sure. what, very much. And what would I the use of presidential power be? Under those circumstances. I think you would see the same uh, tone and tenor that her husband had. I think on some issues you'd see a much stronger and much more strident, I think, expansion of and codification of Obamacare would be one on the domestic side. On a foreign uh, side, you know, she has been very much a hawk. I mean, she voted for both Iraq and Afghanistan invasions. As a senator. Yes. So, I mean, she has shown and spoken that she's not adverse to you know, blowing stuff up. I mean, Libya is a great example. That's hers. Libya is entirely her doing. So I think we're looking forward to looking, looking forward. If should she win? Yeah. I think you're looking at a third Clinton term reflecting pretty closely the, the first two.
I'm not as sure. I think part of it is that the Democratic Party has moved to the left in the last 15 years to a significant degree. And you can see that in the pressure on her and how she's responded with initiatives generally on the domestic front. On the foreign side, she's pretty much kept her mouth shut other than to endorse the Iran deal, which if she didn't would be a disqualifier for her at this point. But I, I think that she historically was a little more of an ideologue than her husband, who was a very pragmatic president yeah. in many ways and did deals and sort of moved the country forward in some ways. The last few years, other than the Lewinsky stuff, were not a bad period for America, the second half of the 90s. So. Gentlemen, with that, it is more than time to pause for uh, a round of commercials. And then I've got loads of interesting email. And, of course, I want to read some of them to you and get you responding. All of that will continue right after this. Hi, this is Milt Rosenberg. Would you like to hear my conversation with Margaret Thatcher, with Barack Obama, with Jimmy Carter, Carl Sagan, Henry Kissinger, for that matter, with uh, Charlton Heston and lots of other famous Hollywood stars? Or would you like to hear a discussion that we ran about the rise and fall of Greek civilization or the rise and fall of Roman civilization or the history of American radio or hundreds and hundreds of other topics? and guests. They are all available for you in a great audio archive, which you get to by simply going to MiltRosenberg.com. MiltRosenberg.com will take you to an audio archive which has built up over the last 40 years. Yes, there's a small paywall you got to get over, but if I say so myself, it's more than worth it, as many subscribers have attested. So go to MiltRosenberg.com, examine what's available there, join us. You'll learn something, maybe a lot. And back to the team of Sacconi, Stantis, and Bear. That's not a law firm. It's a, <laughs> it's a brokerage. Three very, three very smart guys who can broker the news and tell you ultimately where to put your money. And your money these days means your votes and the money you might give to support a candidate. Or maybe it means the country that you're going to immigrate to to get away <laughs> from this mess. Whatever it means, um, here's what um, a friend listening down in uh, Savannah is thinking. Uh, this is an online listener, and there are many of those around the world, it turns out. And he says, Chip being his name, Stantis just nailed it. Trump has offered little, if any, substance. However, even though some of my very best friends are Mexicans, and some are Mexican-Americans, he's right that this country has done next to nothing to stem the tide of illegal immigration. It seems as if they have actually encouraged it. How long have we heard from members of both parties that illegal immigration is a problem? What has been done? How long have we heard that the infrastructure is crumbling? What has been done? How long have we heard that education, terrorism, health care, and more are problematic. What has been done? Fixes in name, none in substance. Wow. I couldn't agree with him more on that first part. Um. <laughs> um, Chip, thanks for the email. Uh, you know, it's, and that's, that's my frustration. You know, Reagan, they talked about the emotional chord that he struck with people. And it's true. He was an actor. He was good at it. But he also had a background of deck of a, at least two decades of study of uh, of friendships with uh, conservative intellectuals and learning the ideas and the ideals. He was able, he and his people, to distill that into a conversational form that appealed to people. But there is still a basis of substance there. I don't get that with Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I, go ahead. Well, I, I, I 
think you're absolutely right. You don't. Trump does not have the kind of background Ronald Reagan had. And, you know, there's another problem with all of this, though. You know, Ronald Reagan came to the presidency when uh, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House, Howard Baker was the majority leader, and they used to get together uh, for lunch and drink and pass bills. That that doesn't happen in this country anymore. We have no uh, collective political body that wants to... Uh, you know, Bob Michael and Dan Rostenkowski, Michael was the minority leader of the Congress, Rostenkowski was the chairman of Ways and Means, one was a Republican, one was a Democrat. They rode home or flew home every weekend together, and they talked about what they were going to fix the following week. That's gone. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner and uh, what's his name from Nevada? Oh, Harry Reid. Harry Reid. These people don't like each other. They don't care about fixing anything for the country. They don't even want to talk to each other. They think they're in trouble if they're seen talking to each other. Well, one of the problems is how to make Trump a true and knowledgeable conservative. I suggest that the four of us chip in (laughs) and get the collected works of Edmund Burke and of Michael Oakeshott and send it as a special gift uh, to the potential candidate. Yeah, I, I think the problem you'll have with anything you send him is that Trump has the mindset of a CEO, which is, yeah. I'm the boss, I control things, and in his case, there's no independent board of directors which can fire him. So he has lived essentially for 30 years where his way of doing things is the rule. And that's, you follow up on the point Dick just made, which is in fact accurate, that there is not the general sort of camaraderie, senator's club mindset that used to exist, it's, it's a much more nasty Well, he talks about how all sorts of people are his good friend. They're not so much people in American politics. But he buys them. <laughs> but he <can> buy them. <laughs> Gentlemen, to the phones, a call from a listener named Evan. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, I'm curious as to whether your panel, whether there's any consensus as to whether Israel can actually pull off a successful attack against the Iranian nuclear facilities. Um, I know your guests aren't strategic military experts, but certainly they have a lot of knowledge of it. We recently heard um, about Ehud Barak saying that the attack was called off two, maybe three different times. And I'm curious if, uh, if there is a consensus that they can actually complete the mission. I think the, I think they can pull it off tactically. I think they obviously are are brilliant and have the the firepower to do it politically that's a different question you have a white house who is openly antagonistic to the current uh, prime minister you have to also ask him what kind of res- response militarily would iran then be capable of making and would they follow through with max exactly force? and would their other allies or, or alleged allies in the arab world attack as well uh and the western world would i suspect it's usually mamby pamby approach and tisk tisk tisk, but really not respond strongly to to that attack. But uh, in terms of how Israel is perceived, especially here in the United States, I think it would be it could be very hurtful. Well, if history is any barometer, uh, every time uh, the Israelis are tangled with the Arabs, uh, they come out on top. Whether it's <laughs> within one, days, <laughs> one, two, or five uh, opponents. Yeah, I. I- I think the, the, the issue here, uh, and it's a complex one, is uh, obviously Israel attacking Iran uh, has different capabilities than if the United States were part of the team. And that was always, I think, what Israel's uh, hope was, 
that if there was going to be a military action, it would be a joint military action. And if you had Israel having to act alone and with the United States actually in opposition, political opposition, willing to go to the Security Council and not protect Israel, uh, you know that the response, the Iranians are not stupid. And if they fired at American ships in the Persian Gulf, they get America involved. So I think they just have Hezbollah fire their 100,000 rockets or whatever they can get off and deal a painful blow. It's a different kind of warfare now in the Middle East than the historic land battles of the 67 and 73 wars. So my view is Israel could probably strike and and do some some damage to what they know exists. Uh, Without the bunker buster bombs, they couldn't do much for the Fordow site, which is heavily underground. Uh, But there would be, I think, significant blowback. And Iran at this point is is a popular country in the in terms of the United Nations, the Western world, Russia, China, they can't wait to get in there because they can, everybody's economically slowed down. Slowed down, so Iran's going to solve their problems. They're going to sell so much to <laughs> Iran that suddenly the world economy is going to start booming again. This is the perception that's out there. But there is an apocalyptic factor uh, on the Iranian side within their version of uh, Shia Islam. They look forward to the end of time, which might be coming soon, and it involves of course, destroying Israel as a premonitory first step to what will be the transformative end of time. And some of the guys who think that way and believe that way are in political power. We don't know about the super Ayatollah who's running the show at the moment. Also, you don't have to wait. If you want to make a worst-case analysis, you don't have to wait until they develop their own nuclear weapon for them to be able to destroy in one afternoon the state of Israel. You can borrow or buy uh, that kind of stuff from Pakistan or even from North Korea. North Korea. Uh, do, you, do you think? Do you think that the U.S. might go further than just politically opposing it? Now we remember that um, it was leaked at one time that the Israelis had prepositioned planes in Azerbaijan, and there's been allegations that the U.S. And Obama administration leaked that information. Do you think they would oppose Israel more than just politically? In fact, try to affect their ability to conduct the operation? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. Terrifying. <laughs> Sad answers, but true. Uh, it's truly the answer, uh, as felt by our uh, by our guests here. And we thank you very much, sir, for the call. And we pause briefly for the usual reasons. Then right back to the emails and calls. And they're listening out there this afternoon around the country. Here's another online listener uh, in Columbus, Georgia, uh, who um, says, "Hearing your Middle East themes reminded me of the oxymoronic." take on arms control by the left. Uh, They are for gun control, just not for Iran. How did Iran pass their background check to get the the license? They're not concealing it. We say they can wear their guns on their hip. (laughs) Who is this? Do they have a name? Well, this is John down in... Columbus, Georgia. How about them dogs? <laughs> John, that's that's brilliant. That's hilarious. And that's an editorial cartoon. I never heard this idea. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and now it will be used. Yes. Wonderful. That is wonderful. Next. <laughs> that's great. Um, here's another online listener down in Crown Point, Indiana, <clears throat> who says, Donald Trump as a candidate scares me for what it says about ourselves. His message reminds me of Hitler and the Nazis. Germany is great. We got stabbed in the back, and it was those Jews who did it. So now we have Mexicans are rapists. We're going to deport 11 million illegals and charge Mexico to build a wall. 
His appeal is to the lowest nuts uh, in our highest. No, I'm sorry. His appeal is to the lowest, not to our highest ideals. I misread not for nut. Um, then he goes on to say, the fact that he has the percentage support that he does is scary. Are we going to stand by while the authorities go door to door to find and deport those, quote, 11 million illegals? It seems to me the world has been here before, and it didn't turn out well, and maybe it could happen here. That last line is a reference to Sinclair Lewis's novel, It Can't Happen Here. And this is from Dell down in Crown Point. Very uh, eloquent, very wise. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, I, I, I think, think the Nazi analogy really holds for mere Donald Trump. Oh, well, I think that not if you, you know, let's not take it all the way, unfortunately, to Auschwitz. But when you talk about, as he as he points out, are we going to have people going knocking on doors in the middle of the night, dragging mm. people out? That was part of the Nazi strategy. And yeah. that's the way I interpret it. It's mm-hmm. certainly not that we're going to uh, create a Holocaust. But, you know, that that whole immigration thing is just... He, he's so off on it. I mean, yeah. you know, we've got 11 million people. A whole bunch of them go to work every day and pay taxes. Yeah. You know, yeah, some of them were criminals when they got here and they've committed criminal acts. But all 11 million people are not a drain on our society, for heaven's sake. Have sense. any of the Republican candidates opposed to Trump yeah. running for the presidency themselves? Have any of them strongly made the point that you're now making? Yeah, I, I think a few have. I think Rubio has and Rubio Bush. Has, yeah. Rubio, Bush has. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Bush is, he gets nailed by the conservative wing of the party for his stance, but, yeah. you know, his stance on immigration is palatable. Right, That, that that's the key point is you can have a position on immigration which is not going to make Jorge Ramos happy at Univision. Yeah. Right. Because it doesn't provide a path to citizenship for people who came to the country illegally but allows them to stay. I mean, there are reasonable approaches to immigration, and the the bill that was passed in the Senate, which died in the House last year, died because it pushed too far. Americans were uncomfortable with simply providing a path to citizenship for 11 or 12 million people who were here illegally. But on the other hand, you know, Donald Trump saying, and their children who were born here have to go. I mean, it flies right in the face no, of the Constitution. How can he stand up and say anything like that and say, I, I deserve to be president? Because it's red, the red meat works. Right now, it's Well, of course, yeah. it, it does. does. It yeah. does. But it, 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 it's just uh, a preposterous position he's taken on immigration. Build a wall that would cost more than our entire uh, national uh, GDP. But, but Mexico's paying for it. You're well, that's that. right. They'll be glad to do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Just send them a bill. <laughs> no, I think our Crown Point listeners very uh, erudite. Next one um, is this. Scott Stantis is facing his greatest era in cartoons. I can only hope that it's Trump versus Biden. Uh, <laughs> they are the living embodiments of their respective parties. Um, Trump is an elephant uh, that can and does trample anything in his path, and Biden is a true jackass. <laughs> Looking forward to your cartoons, Scott. Oh, thank you so much. I'm well. Here's the thing: what's good for cartooning is not always good for America. And so, you know, my industry may be booming, but you know, America's spiraling down the yeah. down the drain. <laughs> but you know. I win, so yay. Thank you. Next up, what's in a name? 
Great point on Trump and how important his name may be to his rise in this race. That's a point that I was pushing much earlier. Not only his high-profile personality, but the name sounds like a guy who can get things done. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what people say, Obama is curiously similar to one of the nation's worst enemies. Um, uh, Also, Trump projects strength. We're a nation that feels on the ropes, one that's been beaten down. Mm -hmm. It's the reason Ron Paul went nowhere. He seemed like a wimp. We need a strong leader, and Trump's not afraid to stand up for himself or his country. It's it's an interesting point. I I think there's a lot of truth to what's in that statement. And if it is accurate, it's going to be problematic for some of the Republicans who are trying to project a more positive outlook about how America can change over the next few years, in particular Rubio, who has been the most positive of the Republican candidates. It could be that he's running in a cycle where negativism is stronger uh, than it's been in recent years. And it's been pretty strong in recent years. Yeah, yeah, it has. But we, you know, you had the ascent of, of Barack Obama in 08, and it was that positive message, you know, yes, we can, hope, change, and all the other, you know, hollow sayings, but they resonated with people. Maybe we're just kind of the, the flip side of that. And I have to agree with the with the um, emailer there that we the country does feel like it's losing. Right. Uh, sure. on, cer- certainly on the foreign policy front, we are. Mm-hmm. Um, domestically, they're crowing about a recovery that is among the most anemic we've ever had. You're talking about 2% real growth in GDP. Wage, wages are still stagnated for the last decade. So, I mean, this has, and it's very fragile, and that's why the news from China, I mean, this all comes in together and works together, uh, is so terrifying that this very, very, very fragile, you know, foal is staggering to its feet, and any little breeze can knock it down. And so this presidency is not, a su- I, I'm hard-pressed to say where the success comes from. Uh, they want to close, now the, the word today is they're going to close Gitmo and move the prisoners to Illinois, or to uh, Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. Um, yay, that, that, that's a score. I, it's to somebody, <laughs> no, one no one in this room, but to somebody. Yeah. I, I think part of the issue with immigration uh, is people associated with the slow growth in the economy and the slow jobs growth mm-hmm. and the 90 some odd million people who are now out of the workforce. So you have the lowest labor force participation rate in 25 or 30 years. And, and you've, there've been studies out that suggest that Basically, 100% of the job growth over the last 10 years has been filled by net immigrate, immigrant jobs in the United States. So <clears throat> these kind of things are you know, not the kind of numbers that people sort of have at the top of their head, but there are perceptions that these things all fit together. Well, and, that- and, and you know, the, one of the reasons that 100% of those jobs are filled by illegal immigrants is because no white or black American wants to work in nursing homes, cleaning bedpans. Right. You know, as far back as the 60s, right. I interviewed Stokely Carmichael. You remember Stokely Carmichael? Sure. Went to my he, high school. He said, he told me, he said, we've got to get black men out of restaurants. They've got to stop serving you white people. They got to stop picking up your ashtrays and coffee cups. Those jobs are slave jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, and it, and his message worked. You know, once <laughs> once have, one. Have you seen the movie A Day Without Mexicans? Oh my gosh, it's brilliant! <laughs> no. It is brilliant. No, I haven't. <laughs> it's about California and that the complete collapse of the state. Well, uh, I I don't. All th- the gardens die, do they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it just. It, <laughs> 
Without Mexicans and Colombians and Filipinos, we would have no one working in hospitals, nursing homes, Rest restaurants. restaurants right. And there's mm -hmm. two points we're missing, too, though, is that now the influx of, of Latin immigration, illegal immigration, is not coming from Mexico. It's coming from further south. Sure. And the second part of this is just hardcore economics, which is the only way an economy grows is if the population grows. The fact of the matter is we're not reproducing. So kids go out there and be American, but they're not. So the population growth comes from the growth of immigration, and that allows our economy to grow. This is right. this is you know this is you know economics one hundred and one. Um, a voice from Edgewater, uh, Greg says, people who dismiss Trump are also missing the larger point that there is a serious anger toward the political establishment in this nation. That a buffoon like Trump can reach such a point is a testament to the desperation of the nation. My wife and I aren't rich, but we do okay. We make about uh, 80K a year. It is nearly impossible to add to our family of three without facing a hand-to-mouth situation. We make too much to get help on health care, but can hardly afford it on what we make. Saving for college has become the American dream, not home ownership. I consider myself rather intelligent. I'm sure I fall somewhere in the middle of the bell curve, but I'm at a loss as to how expensive life in 2015 has become. Trump may be a clown, but at least he's his own man. The rest are bought and sold, and they can go straight to hell. <laughs> well put, Greg. Uh, no, I, I think at the top of the, the last last hour, we mentioned that pretty forthrightly, that that this is exactly what he's addressing is the the anger the the disappointment the frustration and he articulates that and people see that and that's what's resonating clearly mm -hmm. um next hi milt and a team it's been too long a team we need to hear from you more often i wonder how much their own prevarications dissuade politicians from running for president consider one elizabeth warren isn't running she did prevaricate about her supposed Cherokee heritage to get her position <laughs> at Harvard. Two, Joe Biden isn't running yet. His 1988 campaign sank beneath the seas in large part thanks to his plagiarism of a paper during law school. He also uh, lifted whole chunks of his speeches from Kinnock, the British labor leader. The RNC could have endless fun trumpeting these during the 2016 presidential campaign. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's a general deterrent to a lot of people looking at a presidential run because of what it means to their lives, to their families, and to the fact that they know there will be an army of opposition researchers who will take every ambiguous situation in their lives and turn them into something horrible uh, for the partisans on their side uh, and make sure that they are distributed to all the media by 8 o'clock in the morning so they can get on that day's websites. Uh, it's an ugly business. And this is one of the places where the Internet and social media have sort of exaggerated the worst instincts of sort of uh, attack campaigning uh, yeah. and made it an industry. Well, I think the two uh, high-profile victims of that syndrome that I can think of were Sam Nunn and Mario Cuomo. Both of them would have at least on the surface, had the credentials to be a president of the United States, mm -hmm. perhaps a good one. Mm -hmm. And for the very reasons you outlined, they backed out. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they couldn't stand the search, put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. And they knew it. 
Well, you've known politicians all of your life uh, as a journalist. Um, do you like them? I've always liked them. You've always liked I've politicians. Th- I thought politicians some of the most fascinating people in the country for the simple reason. Confidence to, men are too. Yes, true. But, but I think confidence men uh, have a very <laughs> narrow field of knowledge. Yeah. I think the nature of being a politician is when you meet a lady that works in a florist shop, you better be able to ask her how, how she grows her azaleas in the spring. Uh, and when you meet a ball player, you have to ask him, uh, does he throw in the two-seam fastball or the four-seam? Politicians had perhaps a very shallow, but an enormously wide breadth of knowledge. The good ones. The really good ones. And when you have that kind of knowledge and you have that kind of uh, ability to connect with people, they're, they're, I think there develops a natural empathy for those people. Now, I'm not talking about the people who are hanging around Washington or Springfield today, but I'm talking about some of the people I mentioned earlier. I thought, I was, I, at the time, I think I was a voting Democrat, but I thought Howard Henry Baker was one of the greatest statesmen we had in this country forever. I thought Everett Dirksen was, a, you know, who put the votes on the Civil Rights Bill in 1965 for Lyndon Johnson? Howard Baker told me a wonderful story. He was elected to Congress. Dirksen was his father-in-law. And his father-in-law said, come on over to my office. Well, I got a bottle. And he said, I'm sitting in the office. All of a sudden, there's a clamor in the outer office. Two beagles jump into my lap, and it's Lyndon Johnson with his own bottle of bourbon <laughs> saying, Ev, if you're not going to come drink with me, I'm going to come drink with you. Now, I need you to give me votes for a guy in Washington that wants a new dam. And if he gets his new dam, then I get... And Howard Baker thought, this is how it works. But these were, you know, I... I, there were a lot of politicians who were corrupt. There were a lot of them uh, who, uh, no, there weren't a lot that perhaps misled Well, you me. covered Chicago politics. Well. There, yes, there were a lot there of were, politicians there were a lot. who were corrupt, to be sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking more on the state and national level. Yeah. Uh, I did know a lot of Chicago politicians. I may have liked them, but for the wrong reasons. I said three of whose recent governors went to prison. yes. Yes. And, you know, when I watch Donald Trump, I'm very much reminded of Dan Walker mm-hmm. because Dan Walker didn't have the outrageous statements necessarily, but it was all populism and demagoguery. What can I say to make you? He wore a bandana and yeah, marched across the state. He did. And, and he said all the things that people wanted to hear. And he was a terrible governor for four years yeah. and he went to jail. <laughs> so I don't know that that's the, the answer. Uh, but Though in his defense... He went to jail only uh, for crimes committed after, after he was his gubernatorial yeah. term. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think if we had the kind of overzealous U.S. attorneys then that we had now, it might have given the other way around. Of course, some other governors who escaped jail might have wound up there, too. I can think of two. My good friend Frank Buckley, professor of law at George Mason University uh, and a native Canadian, though he's now become a joint citizen of U.S. and Canada, has done two books in which he says, with very rich argument and uh, significant historical knowledge on display, that basically, really, the parliamentary system works much better than our system. And uh, he doesn't think we'll ever uh, give way and change the Constitution and set up a parliament. But he says, well, you can recall a government, you're in better shape. 
Yeah, I think that may be true, but not the Israeli system where you have 15 political parties and you form coalitions with the strongest party only having 20% of the seats in the body. Yeah, if you look at uh, Great Britain, it seems to work better than our system, but there's a lot of places where it doesn't work as well. Well, Canada is one place that also has that sort of parliamentary system and has a number of parties. But Canada could survive with any system. I mean, it's Canada. (laughs) Yeah, they're sorry. To be sure. They're just polite. Um, Italy would be an example where it doesn't work because you have a a gazillion parties and they don't like each other and governments tend to fall apart. I can remember cartooning in the early 80s and they had were electing their 27th government in the war. less than yeah. two years or two le- years. oh yeah no it was, yeah. it was a remarkable procession of like you know it would last yeah. a week and then fall apart i don't know how to tell you this but we're out of time <gasps> we are out of time we're going to end with a little moment half a minute or so of soothing music i think we need to be somewhat <laughs> soothed so here's the touch of beethoven in the late afternoon or early evening uh well, it's going to be Art Hodes instead, I'm told by our engineer, and that's fine. Art was a friend. 